0: One time, a really long time ago, I took guitar lessons. What are you laughing about, Dave? That's, that hurts me really deep. Yeah, it was, it, uh, it was a laughable matter, I agree. So uh, anyway, but the only thing that my guitar teacher tried to teach me were Johnny Cash songs, which was okay with me. So I really liked Johnny's old, old stuff, and then those last ones he did. He had one song called A Boy Named Sue, and it was about a father who had named his son Sue and how difficult that made the young boy's life. Well, just like Sue, there are many names that can really work against you, right? Now then, if anyone has anyone in your family who's named any of these names, I apologize ahead of time. But I, if I'm trying to sell my house, I'm sorry, but Wendy, I'm not going to ask you to do it for me. All right? <laughs> then there are some other names also that are could be problematic, like just in case. Just you have to say it. Don't read it. Say it, okay? Just in case, karaoke, dandruff. We can get a shampoo for you. How about growing up with that name? Doug Graves. And then finally, my favorite one, Seymour Heine. <laughs> Excuse me? Oh, no, not really, not really. Okay. You know, names can be really awkward sometimes, and you wonder what were they thinking when they gave a child a name. You think that especially about some of our celebrities right now. You know. So, but in the Bible, names have meaning, especially in the Old Testament. For instance, Saul was the that his name meant the one asked for. And if you go back to your Old Testament history, you remember that the people said, we want a king like everyone around us. Give us a king. And so God says, you can have Saul. His name meant the one asked for. Jacob, he is a grandson. You're going to be introduced to him later in our study of, of Genesis. And his name really meant the deceiver. And as, you, as we unfold Genesis, we're going to find that is exactly who he was. And then also, you're going to Abraham. He starts out Abram. And his name is changed to Abraham, the father of a multitude. In the Bible, you know, we just learn a lot about people by their names. And then especially about God, we learn a lot about him from his names. And it's unfortunate, but you know, it is, it is the case that language don't always translate word for word or meaning from one to the other. And the scripture... They might be using a particular Hebrew name for God that doesn't translate the same for us in English. And so we have to dig a little bit deeper to find the meaning and the stuff that's right below the surface there. And, and one of the questions you have to say was, why does God need more than one name? Well, it's because those various names reveal aspects of his character. They tell us more about him. And so, never and you know, a matter of fact, one name would never really convey all there is to know about God unfortunately to many of us you know the name God is just kind of like you know the principle it, it's, it doesn't convey everything that there is to know about him there's more to him than just that name and in scripture the names of God they're like mini portraits they're like they're, they the that name inhibits a promise that he has made it it, it reveals his character And so in Scripture, a person's name identifies them. It stands for something specific. And this is especially true for God, and we're seeing that here in Genesis. Um, His names to his people, they they allow, you know, he, he gives those names to him based on his character. They don't name him. And there are times, though, where later on he does change the names of people based on how he has changed them and based on what they're doing, their purpose, their character. We see that with Abram to Abraham. We see that with Sarai to Sarah. We see it to Jacob to Israel. Later on, Jesus does the same thing with Peter. You know, he changes his name. Now, there are many times when the term God is used to point to him. It's, It's really just like the focus on God. And when we read that, I mean, it would be like in Genesis twelve eight. if you want to just look at that, you know, there he, see, he says that, um, open up your Bibles to Genesis 12, that's where we're going to start, and we're going to work through the, the next eight verses there. In Genesis twelve eight, it just makes this one comment at the last of the passage that Abraham built an altar to the Lord, and he called upon his name. And there, it's not so much about any of his characteristics or any kind of his aspects, it's that he built an altar to God. And when we read it like that, one of these places where it is just focusing on him, what the text is doing, especially here, it's really talking about the sum of his character. It's talking about him in his totality. In all of his glory, it's saying he built an altar to him. But there are places in our text where what happens is, is that he does use a name for himself. And that name is pointing to something about him that is unique, that is different from all the rest. You can think about him, and if you had, uh, I have this little thing at home I just thought about. I wish I'd brought it. It's, like a, it's a cube, and it has like 10 different sides to it. It's not a diamond. I don't even know what that's called. Some of you probably know that. And it's kind of like a, a clear, liquidy kind of thing. And you can look at all these different sides, and the light reflects differently on it, somewhat like a prism might be. But as you turn from a different side, it would be almost like you're saying, well, this side, when you look at him from this way, this is his name. Because you're seeing his might. And when you look at him from this name, you're seeing his mercy. And when you look at him from this way, in all these different ways, you're seeing him. When you see him that way, he has a name for himself to draw out the fuller meaning of that. Here, we find in our text what God has done is, first of all, all we know is that God calls Abraham. And to the best of our knowledge, we don't know what Abraham knows about God. But obviously, there had been something in that interaction where he grabbed Abraham's attention and it was so compelling that Abraham obeyed. We don't know any more about it. In the the next eight chapters, 8, 12 to 20, 21 in there, there's a lot of detail about the interactions that God and, and, and Abraham has. But we don't have that kind of detail about what happened in Genesis 12, Genesis 11. But something happened there where Abraham was compelled to follow. And in subsequent interactions, God continues to say, this is who I am. And what he does is he progressively reveals himself. From being just this God, this God that is more more amazing than his mind can fathom. More awe-inspiring. Something that got his attention and says, I've got to follow. He goes from being that to a God who is almighty, a God who is all merciful. And in these next eight chapters, God continues to progressively reveal himself to Abraham so that Abraham has a fuller understanding of exactly what God is calling him into this relationship with the Almighty God. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at that progressive revelation that Abraham is receiving from God through these names. So open up your Bibles. We're in, you should be in chapter 12 now. And the very first one, chapter 12, verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth. The Lord. That name right there in the Hebrew is Jehovah, the proper name of the true God, the existing one. And, and when you look at that definition in your commentaries and all like that, basically it just says the existing one. And when I read that, I thought, well, that's the same name he used for himself with Moses in the desert. It has to be. And so you just go a little bit further and it goes, oh yeah, there we are, I am. This name he used right here, he says, I am. I am the existing one. There is nothing beyond me. There's nothing apart from me. I am. He is self-existent. He is covenant keeping. He is everything you will need. There he is. So, And in in that, in that name, if that's what he conveyed to, to Abram. I am everything you need. There's nothing apart from me you'll ever need. If Abraham was getting the sense of that name, it makes you understand why he says, this man, this God, this calling on my life is worthy of following. There are other names, and they include, there are compound kind of names. You'll see them in a moment. And they provide fuller, a more, more interesting character of his name and his activity. But this full revelation of his name here, you see, he begins to unfold it more in Exodus 3, which, you know, you've probably read before, you've seen Charlton Heston talk about it, you know, in the, the movie, The Ten Commandments. Right. And so there he says to Moses, I am who I am. And thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me. That's Exodus 3, 14. And you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And this is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. Now, the Hebrews, the Jews, and and correct me again, my Jewish brothers, you know, both of you. If you want to just step up and correct me. Hey, I'm not Jewish. You are. I'll listen to you. All right. Uh, just make it quick if you have to start, right? So our, our Jewish brothers, and, and especially going back in their history, they, that name was so precious. That name was so sacred that it would never say or spell out all the name. And so you'll find, this, you'll find that this is how they handled it here. It's called the Tetragrammaton. Am I saying that right? Thank you very much. That's not the whole name spelled out because they never wanted to say it or spell it in such a way that it would possibly offend God. Or dishonor him. And this is what they would use. But, And matter of fact, there were no vows in Hebrew until about the 6th century. And at that time they added it. And when they added the vows, this is the name that you get. Yahweh. And from that is where we continue to unfold that to Jehovah. That's how we've transliterated it to Jehovah. The self-existent, the transcendent, the holy, the righteous, the unchanging God. This phrase is used over 6,800 times in the Old Testament. And most of the time it's referring to like his holiness, his separateness about who he is. And so Abraham's first introduction to God, to Jehovah, was to him in his absolute fullness, the total package of all that he was. And so try and imagine comprehending that. That you don't have a Bible to refer to. You don't have a Torah to refer to. You don't have anyone else that we know of, necessarily, who has interacted with him and has written something down and handed it down. And yet here's Abram who meets God in chapter 12 of Genesis and he says, I am who I am. I am self-existent. There is nothing beyond me. I'm calling you to follow me. Abram meets him. And at this stage of his relationship, that's what he knows. I am following. I am. As he goes on, Genesis 14, flip over there. Genesis 14, 18. And here you come to this place. And now you've come into this, this scenario. And we'll be looking at this story more in depth. But Abraham now has, Lot has gotten himself in some trouble. He's been taken captive by an enemy king. Abraham goes out to get him and rescues him and brings him back. On his way back, he meets another king called Mes- Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And so here we are in chapter 14, verses 18 through 22. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was the priest of the Most High God. Really interesting, the Most High God. In Hebrew, that phrase is El Elyon. Is that that right, Bruce? Thank you very much. Larry, do you concur? All right. The experts have concurred. Thank you most high God. He is the strongest of the strong. He is the superlative God. He is the all-surpassing God. It's really interesting that this particular name unveils strength. Because think about what just happened. Abraham and all of his men, I think the text says there's something like 300 or so, they go, they fight a battle, they win the battle, they take the booty, they take their family, and they're returning home. I would tend to think you feel pretty good about who you are i would tend to think that you're feeling pretty good about what you can accomplish and abraham meets this god again in this particular interaction and here this god says you were strong i am the strongest i am the most high there is no one stronger than me i am the strongest and so I just wonder if it be that this is where God is revealing himself to, to Abraham, especially in comparison to what Abraham had just accomplished, and he's continuing to unveil this part of who he is. And he further even further sets himself apart, by in verses 19 and and 20, 22, he says, "And he blessed him, and he said, "Bless the Abraham, blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God Most High who had delivered." your enemies into your hand. It's interesting right there, Melchizedek is very clear about who delivered who. That it wasn't Abram, that it was God who did this. And then later on in verse 22, again he says, and Abram says to the king of Salem, I have sworn to the Lord God, most high possessor of heaven and earth. Again, here he is, God is, possess- is representing himself, revealing himself as being bigger, stronger, possessor of all. You've just went and conquered. You just went and, and, and conquered this land, this king, these people, but I possess all of it, he says. Flip on over. One of the ones I really, really like a lot. Chapter 15, verse 1. Chapter 15, verse 1. And this one doesn't necessarily have a Hebrew name that corresponds with it, but it is what God says about himself to, to Abraham. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. I am a shield to you. It's interesting that he begins this by saying, don't be afraid. And then he tells him why he shouldn't be afraid. He says, I am a shield to you. I am your protector. Anything that you'd be possibly afraid of, I will keep it at bay. I will protect you from it. I am a shield to you. All along in this process, whether it's been coming, leaving all of his family, all of his land... And going to a place, I'll show you, not knowing where he's going, arriving there, having a dispute with his nephew, going into Egypt, having a dispute with other kings, and all along the way being told, You're going to have a child, but still, he doesn't have quite literally the mechanics to make it happen. And he goes, Don't worry, don't worry. I am your shield. I am protecting you from all these things that you could possibly be afraid of. I'm protecting you from those things. And the very next verse, chapter 15, verse 2, and Abraham says, O Lord God, that you would give me since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. There, that O Lord God, that you would give me, that verse 2 right there, that phrase there is Adonai, Lord, our master. It's, it's one that is used greater than all the rest. It is one who is greater than I. It's deserving of service. He is the master. He's deserving of allegiance. It is the most common name used by Jews to avoid using Yahweh and offending or dishonoring God. Adonai, master, I am your servant. So here, again, this name is revealing this hierarchy. It's revealing that he serves the Most High God. It's placing him where he knows that this is the one who's taking care of him, that this is the one who's giving him his tasks, his duties. All right? Let's move over to 17, chapter 1. Again. And here's a name that everyone knows because Amy Grant sang about it. You didn't ever know about it before Amy Grant. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. That word there is El Shaddai. Right now we should just all break into song. You know. El Shaddai, it occurs five times appearing to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. And each time it's remaining them of his ability to fulfill a promise, to bless, and to grant descendants. You see, you can look at it and it's going to be in, in Genesis 28, verse 3. It's going to be in Genesis 35, verse 11, and Genesis 48, verse 3. And later on in Exodus, he brings it up again. So as Abram has grown older and older, and his wife, too, was was older, and all the while still waiting on that promise. He's in a land, but he still doesn't have a sense of that, I don't think. He's been told that his descendants are going to number the stars and that God is going to bless all families through that seed, through that son. And yet he still doesn't have a son. He still doesn't have that heir who's going to fulfill that and he says i am god almighty and i fulfill all promises and in this passage especially as you if you read through this passage you'll see that that is exactly what god is doing he is confirming the promise and says this will happen this is going to happen flip over to 18 25 And this verse is especially dear to my heart. Abram now has been camped out. And he has visitors. And so he makes a sacrifice. And all of a sudden here, Abraham learns that God is about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Abram appeals to him. And he says, so if there, are, if there are 100 people in that city, would you still destroy it? And he goes, not if there's 100. And so here's Abram. He reveals a little bit his character. He's now a master negotiator and has a used car lot on the south side of the Oaks of Mamre. You know what I mean? And he's like going, okay, 100. You know, he, and, he's, and he's like, if there's five, if there's five, will you destroy the city? And God's like going, no. And in this verse here, in 1825, Abram says this about God, far be it from thee to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from thee, shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? I memorized that the first time, and it was, will not the God of the universe do right? Or maybe that's just the way I've restated it. God is about to judge and punish Sodom and Gomorrah. And what he's done in this passage is he's revealed himself to be equal parts just. That sin will be punished. But that there's mercy that comes hand in hand with that punishment. This phrase, will not the God of the universe do right? There are hard things. There are really hard things. And just this week was in a discussion at an ordination council. There are really hard things where we look at Scripture and we think, I don't understand how this gets worked out. I don't understand because it appears that some of the just do get swept away. I, I don't understand because it appears that there are, are innocents, innocent ones, rather, who are going to get swept away. I don't I don't understand. And so, we know and love those who cannot understand the concept of God. Who cannot grasp all that there is and what it means to come into a saving faith. Their cognitive ability doesn't allow it. And so you say with well, them, what is their destiny? Who are they before God? And it's at those times when you take that character of God and you hang on to it, believing that whatever happens, that he is a fair judge and he will do right. And in Genesis 21, he continues to unfold himself to Abram. Genesis 21 33. And Abram planted a tamarisk tree, Ebersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, El Olam, the everlasting God, the name which speaks to the eternality, to the eternity, the eternal nature of his character and of his person. In other words, all of the glorious attributes of God, of El Alom, are themselves everlasting. There is nothing about him that is not going to last from beginning to end. Actually, it would be interesting that you'd be able to say that, but you can't say that because he is without beginning and end. But every single aspect of his nature are there for all eternity. There are none there that are short-term. There are none there that are, 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 are being leased or rented Or have a dispensation to them. None of them are. They are all everlasting and eternal. And it's interesting. And then also in in Psalm 41. Where it even says from everlasting to everlasting. His faithfulness is from everlasting to everlasting. It's saying his faithfulness. And all those attributes of him. Are olam to olam. Everlasting to everlasting. And I thought it was interesting. So I did some looking. That he plants a tree as he speaks about the everlasting God. And the tamarisk tree is a long-lived evergreen, and Abraham shows his intentions of staying in the land and also the intentions of the God who brought him in the land to keep him there. And that tree he puts there, and it's like going, this tree will be here for ages and ages and ages, just like my God who is eternal. Flip over to 2214, please. Another name that some of us are familiar with, and we have, you've heard talked about and all. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said this day, in the mount of the Lord, he will provide. Well, here we are. This is kind of like the, I mean, it's not that Abram's or Abraham's life has been without really significant things. But chapter 22 comes to that place of that, the epitome of significance, where here we are. Abraham takes his son, Isaac. And and, in obedience to God takes him to Mount Moriah where he is going to sacrifice him. But in that moment before he does so, in that moment before he does so, God provides another sacrifice in place of Isaac. And Abraham takes that ram and he sacrifices him instead of his son. And Abraham calls that place, the Lord will provide. So here... Just this, this, this particular one. It's in a similar way as to what is yet to come. God supplies an, a sacrifice for Abraham and his son, and meanwhile, later in the future, this seed of Genesis twelve, Genesis three fifteen, and that we keep talking about. That son, that seed that is promised, the one that is going to redeem all mankind, is also a sacrifice that has been provided, in substitute. That sacrifice is Jesus. Who's provided in our substitute? And so, while we were all Isaac, destined to be sacrificed, destined to have to pay the penalty for our sin, God provided a ram. God provided his very own son to step in and be the sacrifice on our behalf. So, what has God revealed about himself to Abraham in these passages? He's provide, he reveals that he provides, that he's just, that he's eternal that he's almighty, that he fulfills promises, that he is the master, that he is his shield, that he is the most high, that he is I am, that he is a good judge. So God in his wisdom and his knowledge and in everything, he knew exactly when to reveal new truth to Abraham. He knew exactly what to reveal to Abraham so that Abraham would continue to follow him in obedience, continue to follow him with a fuller understanding of who he was he uses the sin of a city in sodom and gomorrah he uses the sacrifice of a son he uses the battle with enemies and all of these things provide to be teachable moments for god to say in this i'll reveal myself in this instance in this hardship and this thing that you're going through in the barrenness of your wife all of these things i will take those things and infuse them with purpose I will take those things and reveal myself in those things. Not all at once, but only as needed. And God is still revealing himself to mankind. Not all at once, but only as needed. He continues to use whatever is in front of us to teach us about him. Matter of fact, in Romans 1, he says this, Read, you read it up there. He says, he says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal per- power, and the divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. You see what he says? He says, I've revealed myself to you just simply in the creation. And do you want to know how effective that is? It is so effective that his creation has revealed himself to to all of mankind that I dare say that there is not any, any, any people group in the world that does not have a sense of the spirit world. That does not have a sense that there is a God or many gods perhaps in their understanding. Because creation has been revealed in that way. Because creation has communicated that. And so all peoples, have a sense that there's someone or something greater than them except for Western peoples because we've placed ourselves there. We've placed ourselves there. And we believe that we are the ones who have created this and are creating this. We believe that we are the ones who have the answers. Really fascinating to think about that in the context of Stephen Hawking's death this week, isn't it? and everything, he wanted to know the mind of God, and yet he didn't believe in God. He wanted to understand how it all worked. It's unfortunate that he already had the answer, but didn't accept it. John one eighteen continues to say, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. People say, well, I really want to know God. John 1.18 says, look to Jesus, because Jesus explains him. He has revealed himself in the Son. With the arrival of Jesus, he explained the Father. He instructed, he demonstrated the character of God. He was the essence of God in the flesh, fully God, fully man. And in our day and time, God is still revealing himself to you and I. He uses his word. He uses this right here. When we are in it, he uses his spirit working inside of us to convict us, to move us, to, to guide us into truth. He uses his people. Because we come along, somewhere and we say, I'm not understanding this. I'm confused about what God is doing in my life. I'm not understanding how I should be responding. And he uses people to say, this is what God's word says. And, and they point us, we point each other to God's word and he reveals himself right here, right here. He still speaks to us in a still, small voice. He still leads us to the tops of mountains where he asks us to give up the unimaginable. The most precious of things, the most intense encounters like that is when he reveals himself to us. He'll do that in the loss of a loved one. He'll do that in the loss of a job. He'll do that in the giving of a job. He'll do that in new birth. Whatever those intense moments are, he uses those moments to reveal himself. You heard Larry Newman speak about it just a few weeks ago, you know, that it was in the intensity of of a child being born coupled with 9-11. All of that come together, that God used those things to finally reveal himself in such a way that Larry says, I need to trust Christ. He whispers to us in our daily reading. He nudges us toward new truths. And then at times, he remains silent. So that we're more alert, so that we're more anxious for that truth when he does reveal it. In our study of Genesis, we've seen how he's pointed toward the cross without mentioning who or what was going to happen there. And now here we are in chapter 10, 12, and God has further revealed his plan to Abram. And he'll continue to do that as he leads Moses and the nation out of Egypt. He'll give them the Ten Commandments and the law. And he'll reveal more of his plan to Joshua as he leads the nation into the Promised Land. And he does more of that revealing of himself and that plan as he consecrates David as the king and says that David's descendants will sit on that throne resulting in the Messiah one day. And then Jesus arrives with no fanfare, with no recognition, in what was blurry in Genesis has become crystal clear in the death in in the birth of a baby. And along the way, for thousands of years, God has progressively been revealing himself to his people. And so today, what is he revealing to you? Where is he leading you? Some people would say, well, I haven't heard from him. This is how he does it. Coming and sitting in your chair here, we really appreciate that. We we set them up. We like for them to get used. That's great. Coming here and being in relationship with other people is really effective, and God uses that. But it is here. It's right here. That he draws us to this place. And he says, this is how I want to lead you. If you say, I don't know what God's will for me is, it's here. If you say, I don't know where where I'm going, you'll find yourself here. He's revealing himself to you, to that personal, intimate way that he's leading you. You'll find that here. You'll find that in the relationships of this room, in the relationships of your small group. And so it just seems like so often that the people who feel like they struggle the most with knowing what God wants to do with their lives are the people who don't put themselves in the places to find out what God is doing in their life. So be there. Because when you're there, He's going to use you to draw you alongside of somebody else and say, this is what God's doing in my life. What's He doing in your life? And you get to pray about it. You get to talk about it. He unfolds it with you together. And so just the way that God unfolded himself to Abraham in those days, he is doing likewise today through his word. And he longs to do that for each and every one of us. For each and every one of us. And so by being in his word, by being in a small group, by being here in, in church By being in a relationship where you're mentored or being mentored, he's taking all those things and what you're doing is you're tuning your ear, you're training your heart to hear him. And then what's left is to obey him. Because this is the thing. This is the thing. If Abraham had obeyed and ended up in Haran but stayed there, we wouldn't be talking about him today. We would be talking about someone else who obeyed and followed him. And so he reveals himself to us as we follow him in obedience, as we throw ourselves at him, seeking to know him. Hebrews, Hebrews says that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Hebrews eleven six. 6. He rewards those who seek him. So this morning... I'm praying that we, like Abraham, will find in his example of obedience and following, even with the flaws. We're going to be looking at the flaws. The dude is not, he's not Mr. Right. He's Mr. Sometimes, Mr. Sometimes Not. But even in that, we find that he is revealing himself to a people who want to find him. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for your example again. Your word continues to be an example to us time and time and time again. of how you reveal yourself, of the fullness of that revelation, of who you are in our lives and the lives of those around us and how we want to be like that as well. This morning, Father, we thank you for the example of Abraham, but more than that, we thank you for you, for a God who rewards those who seek him, for a God who is seeking, who is earnestly wanting to reveal himself to those who want to know him. we thank you for that this morning, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen.